You're listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government Representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dulavan Barwari. Welcome to the fifth episode of season three. In this episode, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Adhit Miri, a member of the Chaldean American community in Michigan. The focus of our discussion is on the situation of the Christian community which includes Chaldeans, Syriacs, and Assyrians, both in the Kurdistan region and Nineveh Plains, as well as the Chaldean diaspora community in the United States. Dr. Miri is the Director of Projects at the Chaldean Community Foundation, which is a non-profit arm of the Chaldean American Chamber of Commerce in Michigan. Dr. Miri has had leadership roles across various programs, including the resettlement and integration of refugees. He advocates for Christians and minorities and travels frequently to report on the situation facing internally displaced persons in Iraq and the demographic changes as a result of conflict and genocide. Dr. Miri holds a PhD degree from Burnell University, England and a postdoctoral fellowship from King's College, London. And now, the interview with Dr. Adhit Miri. Welcome to the Kurdistan in America podcast, Dr. Miri, and thank you for joining me. Uh, well, Delavan, uh, I thank you, actually, for the opportunity and uh, to have this wonderful exchange. Uh, we, we are, as you know, family, so we can talk uh, to each other as family talks. Absolutely, and it's a pleasure having you, Doctor. Let's begin our discussion by learning about your story. You're a Chaldean American, but where are you originally from and how was life living there? Yes, well, um, I was born in Baghdad, Iraq, uh, December 1948. I was schooled in Iraq until I finished uh, college uh, at the College of Sciences as a chemist in Baghdad, uh, Baghdad University. Later on, I went to England and I uh, started a PhD program at Brunel University, London. And then uh, thereafter, as a young scientist, uh, I started working in England uh, at King's College London. Um, And then the government of Iraq at that time was going through a transition and wanted to attract young scientists to go back to Iraq. Uh, So I was recruited, actually, went back and taught at Basra University uh, for six years until the Iran-Iraq war uh, erupted in September uh, 1980. Uh, The university was under constant shelling. Life became very difficult, and I started thinking of um, uh, going to the United States. I have family here in Michigan, and I thought that would be an opportune time to to make a move. I just did not think, uh, you know, life is going to be as smooth as it was during the 70s. So I came uh, in 1981 to the United States in the summer. And um, I switched uh, at that time from academia, which was my discipline and background, uh, to become a business person as well as a community advocate, Chaldean, Iraqi, American. Uh, So in a nutshell, that's my uh, little historic story. Thanks for sharing that with us. And now, how was your journey to America? How did you transition into a new society? And what were some of the challenges of integrating? 
Well, you know, um, uh, uh, language is key um, uh, to assimilation. Uh, that's why you see all institutes, all countries, uh, the first thing they do with new immigrants is to transition them uh, through language um, so that they can understand the culture, they can interface, they can find a job and so on. Uh, but I was blessed because uh, during my educational years, we were schooled in English, so our English wasn't bad. I polished that when I was in England, obviously. Uh, so for me, the transition assimilation on a personal level was not difficult. It was more difficult on an economic level, simply because when you make a move uh, between countries, uh, there are different raw laws, different regulations. And, uh, uh, and, and I came at a time when really inflation was high during transition from the Carter uh, to the Reagan administration. And uh, that's when I made a decision to, to switch to business. It wasn't that difficult, uh, Delavan, for me, because I said I had the language uh, to support my endeavor. And I also had family here, so I had some cultural knowledge and contacts. So my transition was not really a typical immigrant transition, uh, and, and therefore it was not as difficult. Uh, today, of course, immigrants face different challenges. They face uh, the traumas and the stigmas of wars. I mean, they come here uh, uh, with a uh, really saddled with with the uh, packages that are very hard to overcome. Uh, so my story was kind of easier stories than what you see today. Great, wonderful. Thanks for sharing that with us. And now let's talk about the greater, the broader community. Let's turn to the Chaldean community. Chaldean American community in America, and specifically the one in Detroit, which is the largest and the most established in many ways. Yeah. How big is how big is the community and when did the first arrivals reach America? Yes, yes. In fact, that's a very interesting story. I wrote a series of articles in the Chaldean News. We have a publication in the English language, uh, which um, the, the foundation uh, and the Chamber of Commerce publishes here in Michigan. And it's also on the internet. So if you want to go and visit chaldeannews.com, uh, uh, you will see articles um, uh, that cover many, many interesting cultural and ethnic and historic uh, subjects. So I write uh, frequently, and I, in fact, wrote uh, a series of articles about Chaldeans around the world. Uh, what made them leave Iraq? When did they leave? Uh, where did they go? Who was the first person? So to answer all these questions, actually, this is a very nice thesis. Um, but to tell you, um, you know, kind of in, in, um, in a quick uh, words, uh, immigration outside Iraq uh, started just before World War I. Uh, as you know, uh, the genocide uh, in Turkey uh, against the Armenians, the Assyrians, the, the Christians, that created a huge uh, game changer, much like ISIS uh, in recent history. So many people started leaving the villages and uh, the, they had to go to coastal countries. Uh, Iraq, as you know, is landlocked, uh, much like much of Turkey. So uh, people had to go to Lebanon, to Syria, to Adana, southern Turkey, so that from there they can take a ship, go somewhere else. At that time, uh, the superpowers of the time, France and Britain, were encouraging um, uh, immigration, especially for the Christians and the minorities. So um, France and Britain had program. You can go to uh, Lebanon if you register in Syria. And then uh, people at first went 
to Canada. Canada was the destination that allowed people to come easily. And in fact, the first immigrant in recent history that went to Canada was somebody by the name Joseph Shammam from the village of Tilkef, Tilkepe. And uh, that was in 1889. He went to Canada oh, first. Wow. And in, in fact, and a few people followed. Until 1913, there was about 30 people in Canada. They went to Fort William uh, or Williams in, in Canada. And from there, some of them learned about Detroit. Now, why did they le- learn about Detroit? Henry Ford, it was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the, the world was changing from the uh, agricultural system to the industrial system. So Henry Ford was visionary. He was the first person in the automotive industry that started a $5 a day program. Now, what does that mean? It allowed people to come and work for Ford. And they got paid very well. That was big money at the time. And he did something else which was very smart. He brought translators. So because he knew that all these immigrants, whether they are from the Ukraine, from Europe, from Germany, from the Middle East, they couldn't speak the language. So how do you put them on the assembly line? So he brought translators. And that was the beginning of the attraction. So many people uh, of our uh, community shifted from Canada to Michigan, to Detroit specifically, because of Ford Motor Company. Now, of course, uh, some other uh, cousins and relatives followed, but really the uh, growth of the community occurred in phases. In the 50s, a certain number of people came uh, to, to study here, not like the ones came at the beginning of the century. These people suffered from famine. Uh, they were hungry. They just needed a job. They needed to survive. But then the educational uh, system allowed people to come in the 50s. In the 60s, a turning point, uh, President Kennedy, JFK at the time, uh, legislated a new law where direct family, siblings, can be allowed to come to the United States if there is a a person uh, within the family that has a U.S. citizenship. That brought lots of people in the 60s. But really, uh, the 80s and the wars that Saddam Hussein created and and the destabilization of Iraq and the beginning of fragmentation uh, led to many, many other people like myself to come to the United States. Of course, the tragedy was ISIS, because until then, until 2003, our numbers in Iraq as Christians, whether as Syrians, Syriacs, Chaldeans, um, was about a million and a half. Today, it's less than 200,000. <laughs> Excuse me. So the, uh, the people uh, settled here, our numbers today in Michigan in the year uh, uh, 2022 is approximately 200,000 people, Chaldeans, Assyrians, and Syriacs in Michigan. Uh, but we have people in uh, in uh, Southern California. There's about 50,000 people there. Arizona, there's about 25,000. And, of course, the Assyrians are more located in Illinois, in Chicago, as well as in California. In total, our numbers in the United States today, Assyrians, Syriacs, Chaldeans, is about half a million. Actually, it's interesting because it's more than our numbers in Iraq and in the Nineveh Plain region. Uh, Today, we only have 200,000. So this gives you some statistical overview of the community. 
Very, very impressive. And uh, thanks for sharing that. Learned a lot. And now, so the Christian, the Chaldean and Assyrian community in America is probably the largest in the world, the largest diaspora community in the world. You are 100% correct. We have, of course, people living in Europe, uh, in different countries, uh, in Holland, in, in the UK, in France. Uh, in fact, we also have people in the Ukraine, uh, since Ukraine is in the news, believe it or not. Uh, we have about 5,000 people living in Georgia, and we have an archdiocese now there. Um, you know, Delavan, the world has changed. Today, we live in in what I call a worldly village. I mean, no longer you can have people be placed in one one area, one zone. In fact, if you look at any city, any town, any country in the world, diversity is part of it. You will find all ethnic backgrounds, different languages, different cultures. The world has changed. We don't have borders like before. And, and that, by the way, is a blessing. I mean, I look at it as a positive thing rather than a negative thing. So, you know, sometimes a bad thing leads to a good thing. And uh, this is one example. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agree with that. Now, I understand that the community contributes about $11 billion to the local economy in Detroit area, which is amazing. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yes, yes. Uh, and this, by the way, is not our numbers. These are numbers from academics at the University of Michigan. Uh, actually, uh, we contribute about $11.6 billion, that's with a B, to the local economy. Uh, and uh, where does that come from? Uh, we control uh, not just in Michigan, uh, not just Detroit, Michigan, but in the Midwest, uh, probably 50% 50, 50 of the hotels. Uh, perhaps uh, maybe 60-70% of the cellular stores. Uh, we control uh, uh, probably over 50% of the gas stations. Um, and, uh, of course, we are also very diversified in other businesses, retail, um, uh, economic development, um, uh, properties, uh, property management. So the community has really transitioned itself. Uh, from being a, a surviving community to a thriving community. Now, as you know, in the United States, this is fundamental. Uh, economic strength gives you influence, impact, political strength. So we are transitioning not just from a community that wants to survive, but a community that wants to thrive, impact, influence, which means we are gradually becoming part of the American system. As you know, in the United States, uh, politics uh, dictates and moves um, everything. And to become involved in the political arena, you cannot be a poor person. There is no poor congressman or a poor senator or a poor president in the United States. They have to be either millionaires or billionaires. I don't say we have to do to become that, but I am just giving you as an indicator uh, to, to creating impact, influence, relationships. You need to be economically strong. So when we contribute that kind of money, with it comes influence. Great analysis, and I agree. Now, this takes us to my next question, which is about the advocacy uh, side of the Chaldean-American community. Let's talk about the Chaldean Community Foundation and the Chaldean American Chamber of Commerce, which are the two leading Chaldean organizations in the U.S. How are your involvements in the organization first, and what is their role in America and in Kurdistan? Yeah. 
Well, as you know, uh, the United States is, is a country of systems. I mean, we live in a liberal democracy, much like in Europe. In a democracy, you must have institutions. You cannot really create impact as an individual. You know, this is not like in the 18th century and 19th century where bureaucracy and you had somebody who led uh, a zone or, or a tribe. No, today it's organizations, it's institutions. And this is a country of institutions because institutions bring you not just the organizational background, it gives you the bulk of the people that are within. Because at the end of the day, to be able to move an organization or institution, it is the human resources. It's who is there uh, that is pushing it upward and forward. Of course, you need capital. leadership. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You need also yeah. leadership to, 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 yeah. to gain that. So we moved as a community, evolved like any other communities, from small town groups, church groups, to organizations. So now the Chaldean Iraqi American Association of Michigan, SIAM, was the first actually before the Chamber of Commerce and before the foundation. And that was when the community transitioned itself from a small church groups to a large mass community uh, under one hub. Um, this is the Roman model, you know, meaning uh, to be able to have an institution, you have to have a big stadium, a big coliseum, big house. That was the beginning of the internet. That was the beginning of influence. So we moved from small groups to organizations, but now we are moving to institutions. I call the, the, the church, for example, an organization. But we at the foundation and at the Chamber of Commerce, we have become an institution because our members are not just our people. But for example, we have corporate America. We have lots of, we have Detroit Edison. We have uh, Henry Ford uh, hospital system. We have GM. We, we have Chrysler. We have every big name you can think of part of the Chamber of Commerce or at least a member. So you see this networking has given us uh, wings to, to really uh, spread ourselves and impact all these uh, major, major corporations in the United States. Now, the uh, foundation, which I work for and uh, uh, represent, uh, does is actually the NGO, it's the humanitarian arm of the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce, according to the laws and regulations of the land, is for profit. It's a profitable entity. Right. We are not. We are an NGO. Uh, we are supported by uh, the system. Now, Having succeeded in these models in the United States, it's our role, it's our duty that we transition this to the KRG region, to Iraq, to anywhere where our people live. Why? Because, look, uh, you know, part of prosperity and success is giving back. Uh, the world today is, is, uh, survives on bridges, on relationships, on giving back. And if you notice the models that occurred before us, you will see the immigrants that came from Europe, the Irish, the Polish, the Italian, uh, the, the Jewish community, um, the uh, people that came, for example, from China. After success, Lebanon, Syria, after success, they give back. Now, 
This is their role, and it's also their duty, and this is something we'd like to duplicate. The challenge in all of this is what kind of mechanism do you apply to make it successful? And here again, uh, you have to be academic. You have to study the models that have succeeded, the models that have failed. But I tell you, we have the tools, we have the people, we have the capacity, we have the capability, and we have the desire to give back to the KRG region, our people there, or throughout the Middle East, wherever we have needed. Very well said. So I have also studied interest group advocacy. A big part of it is uh, having building coalition with other groups. So this takes me to my next question. How is your relations with other Iraqi and Kurdistani communities, especially with the KRG representation in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, uh, look, uh, the, the KRG group um, in the United States is, is a wonderful group. Uh, and I don't say that to polish them, but I have worked with them. Uh, Madame Bayan Khan, uh, of course, uh, Dasco, uh, the entire team uh, there are uh, very helpful, very supportive, very understanding. And we have an open channel uh, of communication with them. This is a hugely helpful. They have also acted as a bridge of goodwill uh, to uh, uh, the influential people in the KRG region. So any need, any uh, thing we can uh, uh, work on, uh, we rock in unison. So uh, I cannot say enough about this relationship. But having said that, we cannot be complacent and just uh, give a flowery um, kind of response. The reality of it, uh, there are management issues. Uh, this falls on our back uh, primarily, but also on the back of the community um, in the KRG region and in the Neneva Plain uh, area. Uh, we need to tweak that. We need to make it more solid. We need to really uh, give it some granite foundations. I tell you that because all the efforts that have been undergoing uh, have been fragmented. Uh, individual efforts, uh, not really structured on uh, solid foundations to sustain the growth and to uh, to make it really a system. Because, you know, you and I will change. The system has to stay. So what we have to be able to execute and do is a system. Now, that system, in my view, can cover <laughs> quite a range. I mean, we can have uh, bridges that connects the private sector in the United States, for example, to the private sector in the KRG region uh, or the Deniniva Plain area. We can also have twin programs. Uh, this is well-tested, well-tried, sister programs, universities, hospitals, um, uh, businesses, franchises. Um, economic development, as you know, is key. So what we need to work on and, and, uh, and make it happen, really, is to develop these bridges uh, so that we can have a transition of, of economic strength, uh, political strength uh, from here to the KRG region and to the Neneva Plain area where our people are situated. We do have challenges, uh, but uh, I think we also have solutions. Thank you for sharing that. And now this takes me to my next question that you mentioned, that you highlighted, uh, the Nineveh Plains and Kurdistan. Basically, the Chaldean and Assyrian communities who are an indigenous component of the Kurdistan region 
have some of their territories fall in the disputed areas, the predominantly Christian areas, especially Nineveh Plains. What is your visions for those areas? Yeah. In fact, I've written uh, a couple of articles about this. Uh, uh, This is a a very sensitive uh, subject and a very dear subject to us. As you know, traditionally and for thousands of years, um, the Nineveh Plain region, stretching all the way from Mosul, uh, basically, almost to the border of Diyala. Um, this was traditionally a Christian area. I mean, 100% Christian area. Yeah, there were some other minorities, maybe some Shebeks, maybe some uh, uh, Azidis. But really, this was the geographic area from the northern part of the Nineveh Plain to the southern part of the Nineveh Plain. Okay. Well, you know, um, since uh, Saddam's wars and uh, since... Uh, 1991, uh, the region changed and uh, demographic changes began to happen. The worst thing you can do to a community is demographic and geographic change. With the geographic change that occurred, several issues uh, dominated the scene. I will speak to that before I go to post uh, two or three. So at that time, uh, the the regulations, the laws dissected these communities, okay? I mean, we had a very cohesive, well-connected community all the way from northern Nineveh Plain to the southern part of Nineveh Plain. People were farmers. They were interfaced. They had uh, mutual lands, mutual marriages, roads, um, education, language, culture. Well, that began to change. And then under Saddam's regime, again, several people were brought from other areas to exert demographic changes. That was a huge reversal to the region. What compounded that is in 203. Now, regime change and thereafter uh, ISIS uh, caused us to become islands. So now Hamdanian, Rakhosh, um, uh, as a district, uh, became completely separate from Tilkev as a district, from Shekhan, which is the third district of the Nineveh Plain. Not only that, Iran, which is a culprit in all of this, uh, especially after two or three, um, looked at the geography of Iraq. It has interest in the region. Iran wants to create a, a road a Mediterranean, uh, that leads to the Mediterranean. That road stretching from the Iranian border and Diyala all the way to Syria and Lebanon, where it intends and continues to have influence, had to go through a very soft area. The soft belly was the Nineveh Plain region. Why? Iran could not go through the KRG region. Too much resistance, geography, topography, it just won't work. They couldn't go through the Sunni areas because they're hostile to them. The weakest link was the Nineveh Plain. What we have done here is actually we dissected and killed the heart of a community. And that continues, by the way. And that's the trauma and the tragedy. I mean, to this day, this is ongoing. There are no solutions that anyone has created and came up with. And uh, really, uh, there are many parties to blame, but I start by blaming the United States because it created the situation. It has to fix it. So there has been a drive to create an autonomous district 
semi-autonomous district in Nineveh Plains. What is the status of that? Yeah. Well, there are many theories, many wants. Um, of course, you know, you have to follow a legal path. I mean, there is a constitution. There is what you can do and you cannot do. Uh, for example, transitioning from a district to a governorate is not easy. Uh, that pathway is loaded with lots of issues. Uh, we personally think that the Naniva Plain region, to protect the Azidis, the Christians, the minorities, the Muslims, anyone who lives in that, should be left to the people of that land. These are the people that are living there. They have been living there for a thousand years. They have to be the decision makers, and they have to work together. I think what we uh, like to see is a what I call a no-entry zone. We don't want this area to be under the control of Hajj al-Shabi or uh, other uh, militias. Look, we want this to be gov- self-governed. We'd like to create probably a, um, um, a you know, as a step, uh, uh, districts that are autonomous, that can work with each other, but at least they uh, they maintain their security, their economic development, their interdependency um, on each other, with the protection of a the KRG. B, the Iraqi government, and most importantly, the international community. Without the involvement of the international community, because really it's their responsibility. Um, it's their responsibility legally, uh, politically, financially, and they have to become a player in this. They have to enforce it, make it happen, uh, not allow uh, outsiders to intervene in the security aspect and the development and the financing in the supervision and management of this area. So I think a continuation uh, or creation of uh, strong uh, uh, districts that can work in unison with each other to develop that area and protect it. In my view, that is the only logical solution at this time. Uh, We are not living at a time where the US or the United Nations can force a system just like in the KRG region, for example. Uh, this is not going to happen. So the alternative is this uh, solution, which I am proposing, uh, where you have an independent, strong uh, sub-district that are uh, well-connected to each other, but they are protected from within and with the help of the um, United States or the international community. That's my vision in my view. Dr. Miri, now that we have sp- uh, discussed Nineveh Plains, I wanted to know, get your feedback on the genocide by ISIS, which was a tragic and traumatic event for everyone in Iraq and in diaspora. Did you see an increase in Chaldean refugees arriving in America? Yes, um, a great question. You know, uh, ISIS genocide, and I have written, by the way, a series of articles uh, about the genocide of the 21st century, because the genocide of the last century happened during the Seifu uh, genocide in Turkey uh, in 1914, uh, leading to World War I. This actually um, is, is in modern times, and to happen at the beginning of the 21st century, when hope was so high. Uh, was really very traumatic. And it, 
as I said earlier, dissected the community and dissected the geography um, in a way where it is very hard to repair. Uh, because, you know, you build communities over thousands of years. You build relationships over hundreds of years. And here comes uh, a, a, a force uh, that's so evil, uh, that's so outside uh, the, the thinking, uh, logical thinking of the century, and uh, do the horrific things they did to the Azidis, to the Chaldeans, to the Mandeans, the Sabians, our uh, cousins, is unthinkable. And then... Quite honestly, the participation of neighboring countries, uh, Turkey, Iran, Syria at the time, in making it happen, and the weakness uh, uh, within the Iraqi government. Uh, the Iraqi government failed its people. It failed me, failed you, failed everybody in Iraq. Uh, the role of any government is to protect its citizens, is to make sure that the citizens are dealt with equally, protected equally. Well, that didn't happen. And the victims, as you saw, people started selling women for $10, um, uh, especially the Yazidis. This created not just a stigma, it created a huge international problem leading to migration uh, in all parts of the world. In fact, we still have people stranded from the Nineveh Plain villages uh, and from the KRG villages, still stranded in Turkey, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Greece, in Jordan. And no country is willing to accept them because, as you know, immigration laws change with time. Priorities change. Today, the United States, for example, is offering 100,000 Ukrainians um, uh, immigration visas, but they're not giving that to, to Chaldeans or Christians or Iraqis. And the, the U.S. has a policy. They really don't look at religion as an issue. They look, um, uh, you know, this is a secular uh, country. Uh, they look at people. They look at us as numbers. But that's a fallacy because the people that were impacted with the ISIS uh, genocide were the Azidis and the Christians and the Mandians. They were not the Muslims. It was us. So now to apply to us uh, a, a statistical uh, equation and that you allow 10,000 from Iraq and 50,000 from Syria, and so uh, it's a problem. It's a mistake. Um, so many people came here with difficulty. Those who arrived uh, post-ISIS uh, tried to assimilate here. Uh, it's not easy, and I'll tell you why. Because these people, before coming to the United States and arriving at these shores, they spent... Uh, probably three years in Lebanon, two years in Cyprus, a year in Greece, no schooling, no education, no nothing, no financial capa capacity, no skills. So they come to the United States, and now what? So they can only do certain jobs. Our job here as a foundation, as a community, is to help them get situated, assimilate, and we're trying to do best uh, under very difficult circumstances. That's our role. That's what we try to do. Uh, it's not easy. The numbers have dwindled, especially during the Obama administration and, of course, uh, uh, now under the Biden administration. Uh, we would like to see more of our people come here. Um, uh, we are very productive people. We are uh, much like any immigrant that comes to a new country, uh, hungry uh, for work and hungry for success. And we are peaceful, productive people. Unfortunately, the government looks at us in a different light. Hopefully that can be reversed. 
uh, we keep pressing and we keep hoping that our people can arrive here or in other European countries or Australia so that they can start a new life. Has the community in America been able to help those in, in Kurdistan and Iraq? If you want my sincere answer, it is not sufficient. The help that we are giving, in my view, is minuscule. Um, the aid that is reaching our people is done on an individual basis, not institutional. Um, funding can go to the church, for example, certain amount of um, you know, we have some philanthropists, people that like to contribute, uh, which is great. Uh, but really, in terms of statistics and numbers, it's not acceptable. It's not to the level that it needs to be. Uh, the help that comes to our people, whether in the um, KRG region or in the Nineveh plain, is from NGOs and from governments in Europe. Um, even the United States, uh, in fact, this is something which I'd like to highlight for you. Um, in um, in uh, 2019, uh, in fact, during the Pence-Trump uh, administration, uh, they allocated uh, uh, $300 million uh, for the development of the Nineveh Plain region, meaning from al Qosh to Karakosh, not Mosul, but just that region. That number increased to 385 later on. That money did not trickle down to the people in our villages. In fact, USAID, uh, did a few things here and there, but nothing significant in my view, uh, to revive uh, the economies of these towns. And much of it went to the Shebeks. I mean, the distribution of wealth and the money and utilization was not appropriated proper, prop, in the proper way. And that's a sad thing. In fact, even recently, I learned that a portion of that was uh, of those funds that were specifically for this region uh, were diverted to Nasriya. Now, Nasriya sits on wealth, uh, probably like no other uh, oil wealth. So you see, again, it's about the management of situations. It's the management of money. So um, we have not done a very good job in, in trickling the money to our people and helping them. And I tell you, we don't want to just give donations. That, really, we need economic development. We need these people to have tahini factory. We need them to have textile factories. We need the widows and the young people have something for them. We want them to enter the 21st century uh, the right way. And that requires not just um, individual help, institutional help, but government help. So we always press uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, to allocate more funds uh, for the minorities um, in the KRG region and Iraq. Thanks for sharing that. Now, you've recently spent a lot of time in Kurdistan to engage, to encourage engagement uh, between the Chaldeans in the U.S. and the Christian community in Kurdistan and Nineveh. What was your impression of the situation and how do you see the engagement growing? Well, you know, look, uh, in the KRG, uh, I see energy. Uh, when I say energy, youthful energy. I mean, the administration that you have today there in Kakmas, Rur Barzani, for example, and his team, um, this is a well-structured team. I mean, they are young. Uh, they seem to be very open-minded. I like that a lot. In fact, uh, being open-minded has led that one of our ministers, Anu Abdoka, is Minister of Transportation and Communication, uh, which is wonderful. So now that is an indicator of um, the diversity and support of diversity in the region. That's one. 
the other thing uh, within the region, of course, uh, the 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 fact that the KRG accepted and protected the Christians that fled Iraq, uh, uh, other areas uh, during ISIS, especially from Musa and Naniva plain. Uh, this is remarkable and very commendable. And uh, so we, we can say thank you to that. But having said that, uh, there's lots of development. Um, maybe it's slow, maybe it's moving faster in certain tracks than others. I'd like to see more of that. Um, I think one of the deficiencies I see um, to, to encourage um, uh, investment and to encourage development and engagement of the uh, uh, diaspora community. It doesn't have to be just the Christian community. In fact, just the diaspora, I call it, um, is really the banking sector. Uh, the banking sector needs to be refined in the KRG region so that it facilitates and makes it easier to do business. Uh, the KRG region has made lots of progress on the visa aspect, for example. I think the investment law uh, that is uh, uh, in place, uh, the new one uh, uh, by the Investment Commission, Dr. Mahmoud Chukri, and uh, others have put something very interesting and very good. But, you know, Delavan, you know, in, in, in the world today, it's about the rule of law. All of this means nothing if you cannot apply the law and you apply it evenly, evenly to everybody with the transparency and effectiveness. So I think that is another area where the KRG region need to tweak and refine its processes, uh, and that is the application of law. I think they have very good law. I think the new uh, uh, constitution is being tweaked. Uh, there's lots of good things on the educational end, uh, uh, on the fact uh, that protection of minorities and so on. But really, a law is a written document. Unless you implement it, unless you apply it, it means nothing. So it needs the will and the strength of the government to apply the law. The reason I indicate that to you is because we witnessed a recent example uh, that touches the community in the village of Badersh in uh, in Dehok, uh, near Sarsang, uh, where somebody wanted to confiscate land after 150 years of a claim which really turned out to be fictitious. This is not the first and it will not be the last, but it is a litmus paper. The KRG government has to make sure that the law is implemented, applied, and people's rights, especially land rights and civil rights are protected. Because if we fail in the villages, we will fail in the cities. Would you like to add anything else before we end the interview? Well, I would like to say that, uh, look, uh, there is a lot of work to do. I really uh, i am a firm believer in, in sister programs. I think, uh, uh, the, the, I think in the KRG region, we have a model. Um, I mean, I, I advocate Iraq as a whole. I mean, I love the entire country, each and every city, and I've served in many towns. But I think to be smart about this, in the KRG region, we have an opportunity, uh, an opportunity for the KRG region to lead that entire zone. In fact, all the way stretches to the Gulf. This can be the breadbasket of Iraq and the region. This also can be a model of prosperity, uh, a model of working together, uh, a model to attract international investment, um, investment that can lead to tourism. It can lead to development. It can lead to uh, enriching the uh, uh, agricultural sector, the private sector. 
These are the visions uh, that I'd like to see more of. And these are the kind of initiatives I'd like the KRG administration and government support. I think they are on the right path. Uh, they're not all the way there. Uh, I mean, different things move at different speeds. Uh, but I see uh, um, uh, I, I, I see something um, that can develop to be a very big thing. And I think this park in the region can come from the KRG region. Very good analysis. Thank you so much for the amazing interview. No, I thank you, and uh, I hope we can do more of these in the future. And maybe if I go uh, to Kurdistan uh, next time, uh, I'll bring you uh, uh, Sipha uh, or something, uh, uh, or Arachin or something. I usually bring these as gifts to people here, and I tell you they love them. Uh, and, and there's so much uh, uh, homemade uh, art craft. Uh, I mean, you go to the Qaisariya in Erbil, and you'll be astonished of what you see there. Uh, of art and of history and of culture. I wish I can bring Kebab Yasin and make a franchise and put it here, uh, but that's more difficult to do. Yeah, thank you. My favorite thing from Kurdistan, usually what I ask for is tahin from Ahmadiyya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, hey, see, here we go again. I mean, uh, look, uh, the, the region can be a source uh, to support so much within Iraq. I mean, you have 40 million people in Iraq today, and uh, we are net importer. But in Kurdistan, we can become net exporter. And, and I'd like to see that. Likewise. Thank you so much for the amazing interview again. I thank you. Have a great day. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government Representation in Washington, D.C. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast either on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google. Also, for more information about the Kurdistan region, please visit our website at www.us.gov.krd or follow us on Twitter at krg_usa. USA.